0: from Integral Life, welcome to Everyone Is Right. America's pathological relationship with gun violence is what's often called a wicked problem, a deeply complex, multifaceted problem that cannot be fully seen or understood from any single point of view, and therefore requires an integral, multidisciplinary approach in order to solve. Unfortunately, when it comes to gun violence, There are very few discussions out there that are even trying to put all the pieces together, choosing instead to politicize the brutal deaths of innocent children and families and allowing the narrative to become dominated by these narrow biases, ideologies, and objectives. In the meantime, nearly 100 Americans die from gun violence every single day. In this discussion, Ken and Corey try to identify the root causes of gun violence in America and suggest some innovative solutions that might help us turn the page on this terribly wicked problem. Listen as Ken and Corey discuss some of the most important factors, conditions, and commonly blamed causes of America's affliction with gun violence, using the four quadrants to help illuminate and unpack the true but partial roles that each of these factors play. These factors include things like mental illness and mental health in general, the decline of empathy, pharmaceuticals and possible effects upon brain chemistry, the gun as a uniquely American archetype, polarization in the culture wars, neoliberalism, the loss of community and the death of meaning, the resurgence of white supremacy countercultures, Family values, the rise of fatherless families, access to guns, the internet as a platform for radicalization, video game violence, automation, wealth inequality, economic anxieties, and more. This conversation is one of the most comprehensive analyses of gun violence that you'll hear. And because Ken and Corey want to give the problem all the time and attention it deserves, the full episode includes more than eight hours of careful discussion all of which is available to supporting members of IntegralLife.com. In the meantime, please enjoy this one-hour introduction, where Ken and Corey discuss some of the central facts and challenges that frame the rest of the discussion. So today we're going to be doing a a pretty, you know, somewhat heavy episode. We're going to be talking about uh, gun violence in America. Yep. huh and, you know, Ken, I had something totally different in mind <laughs> for what we would be talking about this month. Right. Um, I wanted to do, a you know, sort of a nice, light, breezy conversations about things like quadrants and quadrivia and the eight zones of integral methodological pluralism, you know, keep it, keep it kind of light. Right. Um, and then we had the week that we had, which was, you know, on the one hand, heartbreaking. On the other hand, um, all too common. I mean, we're, we're seeing stories like these, uh, just week after week, month after month. I mean, you know, day after day in, in, in some cases. And uh, that was, of course, the two uh, back-to-back shootings that we saw in El Paso and in Dayton. And, um, you know, once again, this got everyone talking about the issue. Uh, well, I should say it's gotten everyone talking around the issue. It's got everyone pointing fingers at a thousand different points of blame. Um, No one can quite agree what the real source and the real cause of uh, all this gun violence is. But today you and I are going to be exploring exactly that because it's such a complex issue and it's got so many different sort of moving parts and factors and variables to it. And so many people, again, trying to reduce the problem to only one or two of of these factors or variables, which means that, you know, something... Uh, really, only something like an integral approach can actually allow us to to even really get a full sense of the problem, the depth and right. scale of the problem. Um, you know, the gun control problem itself can is something that you and Alan Watkins might call a wicked problem or or what other people might call a hyper object, which means right. basically this this really highly complex, multifaceted problem which you can't see fully or clearly from any one sort of point of view. Um, And therefore it requires this, you know, comprehensive, multidisciplinary transdisciplinary approach in order for us to even begin to make sense of, right. Um, In other words, it's, it's an integral problem. If ever there was one. And before we jump into it, Ken, I was just wondering if you had anything you, you wanted to say about this just by way of introduction um, or anything like that, or should we just jump right in?
1: Well, I just, um, A few uh, just very broad sort of integral uh, overview um, items. Uh, Gun control, gun freedom, gun rights, um, it's one of those situations that um, for American culture seems to divide it more or less right down the middle. Um, In this case, it's very like abortion rights. Um, and the problem anytime you want to discuss one of those kinds of issues is that it, because the audience has almost entirely made up their mind, just take those two issues, on, on abortion or on gun control, and they're either for it or against it. I mean, gun control 47% of Americans want stricter gun control. 46 are happy with the way it is. They want, if they want anything, they want less gun control. So it's a standard 50-50. And the problem with, with any of those issues, abortion or gun control, is that once you announce the side that you're on, You've lost fifty percent of your audience, mm. and they will just hate you. Basically, no matter what you say, you're not going to change their mind. They're just going to sit there and fume. The more you talk, and they're not going to agree with anything you say, and it's just it's, it's over. And all you're doing is demonstrating your utter total ignorance to them, which they you know it is, sort of sort of figure out. That one thing. I will never do and you will never hear me do is ever agree with just one side of those arguments. Mm -hmm. Because that's pretty much the definition of not integral is when you do that. Um, I mean, if you go back to some of the sort of pre-integral thinkers like the German idealists, for example, and you take somebody like Hegel, he um, became well known, or he's, he's um, described this way, even though he himself didn't really use these terms that much. But one of the ways that his philosophy is, is defined is that you have Thesis, antithesis, synthesis. So a particular point, whatever point you want to take, pro-abortion, anti-abortion, but there's a point that comes up, that's the thesis. It's met in reality by its antithesis, and then those are eventually joined in a synthesis, and that synthesis becomes the new thesis, and then it runs into its antithesis, and then there's a higher synthesis. And that's how evolution itself works. We call it transcend and include, transcend and include. It goes beyond, but embraces and goes beyond and embraces. And that's what we need to see in both of these kinds of arguments Mm -hmm. is that type of transcend and include, transcend and include. Because the one thing that is categorically unarguably certain just even sticking to those two cases, is that the standard arguments today that favor just one side or the other have, have catastrophically not worked. Um, and, and they remain incredibly um, problematic and, and induce an enormous number of uh, conflicts and, and um, really, really severe um, problems that that aren't really working out very well. Mm -hmm. Um, So what we don't want to do is ever choose just one side or the other but see if we can't find ways that we can take the partial truths from each of them, reject the partial falsehoods from each of them or at least try to get some balance like that and then bring the thing together into some sort of actionable item um, that can carry this thing forward a little bit. Um, So we'll see how that goes. Uh, It's also the case. Last thing I'll say is that it's always very possible that, because again, one of the major factors in how societies unfold is that among all of the elements that are influencing them, quadrants, levels, lines, states, types, and, and those are just a handful of integral. I mean, we include like shadow elements and just, oh, 20 tenets. I mean, just an enormous number of things. But those five um, are really central. Um, and even though I bring up development a fair amount, Development really only refers to one of those. It refers to the levels part. So when we talk about things like showing up, that means including all four quadrants. Growing up, that means working with levels. Opening up means acknowledging lines. Waking up means states, working with higher states, the consciousness. And cleaning up refers to shadow elements. So it's only growing up or the levels component that that is the developmental aspect, but that's the one that gets left out mm. uh, as much as anything. And it's one of the ones that has some of the most explanatory power. So the problem right now in terms of these types of solutions is that it's true that we want to take these opposites, bring them together into a higher synthesis. It's also the case that culture itself continues to unfold and evolve and develop through higher and higher waves of unfolding. And there's a great sort of range within that. But the leading edge of of that culture it's always just bumping up against what it can do and what it can't do. And even if it's done pretty good, looking back at the, you know, let's say previous 10,000 years of history um, and how humankind has done up to this particular point. But then sort of cultural evolution might have just done relatively well integrating the previous opposites, polarities, dualities, and created a synthesis that it's now representing, but that synthesis might be bumping up against what can effectively be done at this particular time. Mm-hmm. And so even if you can sort of theoretically or some small group of individuals can come up with the next thing that culture needs to do, the next antithesis it needs to take into account in order to create a new synthesis, it might be that uh, we're, we've hit the ceiling right now, can't do that right now. We'll be come back in 10 years or come back in 20 years, we'll be a little bit more open to taking that next step. Right now, we're all stepped out. And that that just for things like, I'm not convinced of this, but I'm just saying for things like abortion, things like gun control, we might be all stepped out in terms of how far uh, up we can go. Mm. Um, I don't think that's true. I think we can come up um, with some solutions. And we're certainly going to give some integral stage suggestions, some second tier um, systematic um, suggestions on um, what we can do with, with some of these problems. And they're very, very, very complex.
0: Yeah. Yeah, they really are. And we will get to some of those solutions, but it's probably going to be a bit of a, a long climb before we get to the peak of that mountain. And Ken, I love what you're saying about, you know, we often say things like everyone is right, Which is, on the one hand, it's one of the easiest things to say. I mean, every perspective out there has, you know, is true but partial. And of course, the art comes with trying to figure out how much truth and how much partiality any given perspective has. And I agree with you that we begin the conversation with this sort of unbiased, you know, we're not going to walk into the conversation trying to favor one side or the other. And at the same time, if, you have, if you're talking to two people and one of them says, you know, Hamlet is about depression and existential malaise and the other person says, no, it's about Shakespeare's favorite flavor of ice cream. I mean, there's, you know, one is more right and one is certainly more wrong and you're not going to find some 50-50 kind of combination of those perspectives. So it is an art form non-exclusion is to say you know everyone's included there's there's room here for everyone just stay in your own lane and and we'll integrate your perspectives and foldment is the tricky part right where we actually say okay well this truth is a little bit more true than that true right. which isn't to completely dismiss what you're saying but we have to take these both and figure out how they sort of come together so
1: that's why the second part of everybody's right is some people are more right than others exactly and you just that's how you you have to balance that yeah
0: yeah that's right so just to give people sort of a sense of what we're going to be doing today the first thing i'm going to do next is i'm going to um just put a couple facts on the table that i think are important to sort of give a fuller context uh for what we're going to be talking about today okay and we're going to go into what i basically did ken is i took this really quick and dirty quadrivia approach to gun violence. And I said, okay, let's look out culturally. Let's look at what the left is saying about this, what the right is saying about this, what just people on the internet are saying about this and try to compile a list of all the major factors um, and causes that are being pointed to by various people, various groups, various advocacy groups, etc., and then we can take a look at at each of those within each quadrant. And you know, again, there's there's probably going to be a dozen more we could easily add to the list. But I feel like these were some of the more important ones. And of course, if you have any to add um, as well, we'll 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 do that too. Um, so before we get there, I just want to throw a couple basic facts on the table. So I'm going to be you know reading some of this out. Um, right. The first off is that America does indeed have a gun violence problem. And the the first step to dealing with any problem is to admit you have a problem. And a lot of times we can't even get people on the same page there uh, when it comes to how the media treats this this issue. But we do have a serious gun violence problem. Um, You know, we are ranked fourth out of 34 developed nations for the highest incidence rates of homicides committed with a firearm. Um, in 2010, uh, the U.S. homicide rate was seven times higher than the average for um, populous developed countries uh, in the OECD, and uh, our f- uh, fire-related homicide rate was 25 times higher, which is nuts—25 times higher. Now, that doesn't mean we have the most gun related deaths of any country. I think actually Brazil has us, has us beat there. But yeah. when you, when you look at the countries who have more than us, it's not necessarily the company that, <laughs> that, you know, us American exceptionalists like to keep. Um, you know, a lot of them are what Donald Trump might call shithole countries uh, who obviously they've got worse problems with this than we do, but that's not to say we don't have of all the civilized modern nations out there. Uh, we've got a serious problem here. Um, however, that said, it's important for us to remember that violent crime in general has fallen like precipitously over yep. the last twenty-five years, pretty much cut in half. Which, Ken, I feel like nobody really knows about um, because we're blasted in these twenty-four-hour news cycles about you know just the latest shooting and then, and then the copycat of that shooting and you know just it, it feels kind of dystopian if you're watching you know Fox News or CNN all day long. Um,
1: yeah, uh, depending on which source you go to, the crime rate has dropped between 49% and 74%. Which is nuts. And yet, uh, the country, almost 40% of people think that it's gotten worse. Yeah. Because that's subjectively how people feel at this right. time of insanity. Is, well, it must have gotten worse.
0: Yep. Well, it's funny, kind of because there's a follow-up to that where the, the people are asked, you know, is crime getting worse? And they say yes. And then the follow-up question is, okay, is it getting worse local to you or just out there in the world? And it's always, no, it's, uh, around me, it's fine. It's out, it's out there in the world. Right. Um, but yeah okay, if you use fbi statistics it 's down forty nine percent in twenty five years um, If you use the what is it the Bureau of justice statistics it 's down seventy four percent either way, it has come way down and there 's all sorts of theories for why that is one of the uh prevailing theories that 's out there is because uh, we finally got uh, a generation out of lead poisoning, for example, we stopped. We, we started enforcing all these uh, very strict lead poisoning laws, and I think it was like the mid-80s or something like that. And a lot of people were saying, well, that's actually responsible for diminishing crime rates. Um, I don't know if that's the cause or not, but it's, it is really interesting that it's come down. Well, so, when we get to um, lower right sort of structural statistic things, I'll give some suggestions. Great. If it please. Awesome. Awesome. So... The next piece is crime rates, violent crime rates in general are coming way down. It is a much safer world today than it was when I was a kid, right? Way safer. It's actually safer for you to leave your door unlocked today than it was when your grandparents did the same thing in the, in the 50s and the 60s. Um, but nobody knows that. However, while violent crime has been coming down, you know what's been going up? Suicides. Suicides continue to represent 60%, 60% of total gun-related deaths. That's right. They dwarf
1: all other causes of gun-related death. They really, yeah. yeah. And it's it's kind of funny, too. It's one of the reasons, if you look at suicide rates, 70%, 75% of attempted suicides are done by women. 75% 75% of successful suicides are done by men. Mm. So 75% of suicide deaths come from men. Mm. And, and that percentage, it, it just gets bigger and bigger and bigger than female suicide uh, until um, there's one absolutely staggering statistic. Um, by age 65, a man is one thousand six hundred times more likely to commit suicide than a woman, so it, it, it does tend to be one of those things that men um, increasingly specialize in, yeah. as if that's good to know. But the important point here is that the rates have gone up across the board for everybody and in an absolutely unprecedented. Rate. Yeah. I mean, up to 40% in, in overall and it's particularly hit the youngest generation so called IGN or Gen Z the very youngest. it's hit them particularly hard mm-hmm. um, so that's an issue that's just one of those background factors shoving up the gun death rates that probably have really much more important causes lying elsewhere than That's right. in that type of just overt gun Yeah,
0: yeah I, yeah, I think the, the common uh, sort of framing I see around this, Ken, is that you know, men tend to be more effective when they attempt suicide, right. largely because of the tool that they choose to commit suicide with, which right. is more often than not a gun. Right. A woman, more often than not, will not use a gun. Actually, I, I believe the statistics say uh, poison is the most frequently used uh, method of suicide for women. Um, so, I mean, this is interesting, right, because A, suicide takes a little bit of time in order to you know, for it to have its effect, which is a lot of time that a person who is in this mental state can get out of that state and make a different decision, seek help, call, you know, oh my God, I just took a bottle full of pills. Come help me. Whereas, whereas if you're using a gun, you're not giving yourself a whole lot of opportunity for that state to pass. Um, which is why, you know, a lot of people are saying, well, if we can find a way to get guns out of the hands of, you know, chronically depressed and, people with mental illness and all that, then we'll see suicide rates immediately start to drop because they won't be able to be um, so impulsive about pulling the trigger and ending their lives, which is, which is interesting. Um, so suicides are going way up, um, up 25% over the last, I think 10 or 15 years, which is, which is scary. Um, so then we get to the mass shooting. So, so homicide and suicide obviously make up the vast majority of gun-related deaths. Um, mass shootings are without a doubt the most terrifying of you know all the different forms of gun violence. I mean, you know we had two shootings in a row, um, and then literally the next day, my family had a trip to the denver zoo and You can bet that had an effect I mean you know when you 're walking around the zoo and you 're thinking about these stories and you're you 're looking around for you know basically emergency escape plans in case everything goes. I mean, it is, it's, it, it's domestic terrorism, and it has an effect that makes us fearful of public spaces. It works. That said, statistically speaking, and people really don't like hearing this, especially you know, after, right after these, these incidents happen, but still, it's important for us to acknowledge that statistically speaking, mass shooting deaths account for by far the smallest little slice of total gun-related deaths. Right tiny little slice. So for example, in 2017, there were a total of about 38, 39,000 total gun-related deaths. The majority of them, 23,000 were suicides, about 14,000 were homicides. So 23,000, 14,000. 1,300 were accidental deaths and war casualties and things like that. The number of people who died from mass shootings was 71 Now, that doesn't mean that these 71 lives that were lost randomly um, due to just, you know, the, the, the most barbaric act you can imagine, it doesn't reduce the tragedy of that at all. However, the concern is when all of our conversations, our national conversations about gun control all revolve around this, this tiny little sliver of fatalities that's being caused by public shootings, well, We're we're basically ignoring the 23,000 people who committed suicide. We're ignoring the 14,000 people who were shot up and mostly in the major cities. Um, We should say the major Democrat run cities uh, around the country.
1: Yeah. And one of the reasons that mass shootings um, have such um, a disproportionate impact in terms of the actual number of people they kill, that's always relatively small, nine people here, 10 people there, 12 people there, maybe 49-ish at sort of the upper limit. Um, The difficulty is that those shootings really aren't an attack on a particular individual. They're really an attack on the fabric of our civil society. That's what we feel is being threatened when that happens. And that becomes a really serious issue for people um, because the backdrop for pretty much everybody in this culture is the increasing unraveling of our civil fabric. And that's a serious major issue that people have Either directly in their conscious or in the background of their conscious, almost all the time now, and it, they can't figure out anything to do about it. And and it truly is a problem. We'll be talking about you know that uh, more later. Yeah. Uh, but that it's a really very very serious issue, and people are very very concerned about that. So you won't hear of the uh, you know. Uh, you 50,000, 50,000 homicides that are occurring, you will almost never hear a national news media organization pick up the name of just this person over here, or this person over here, or this person over here, or this person over here. Person over here. But you get a mass shooting of four, five, seven, then that's French page news. Everybody's concerned about that. Um, and you can also then tell where the political interpretations of those events soon set in. And so you have very sort of predictable responses from the left and from the right about what they think about this. And then when it comes to gun control, fairly predictable responses from the left and from the right. And so we get this replay of some of these fundamental huge dualisms that our culture is founded on and those part of those are important and part of them are this this whole thesis antithesis synthesis that we should be doing but we aren't right not with these issues and in part we're not doing it with these issues because they immediately inflame some of the really deep, deep roots that human beings have for a dualistic approach to reality in any event. Mm. And so all of that is just made completely manifest in these types of situations. And it also, as just sort of final thing to say about that, It also shows exactly why the only cure for those kinds of problems are integral orientations, integral Mm -hmm. approaches, because otherwise it's just always going to be, you know, the red shirts versus the green shirts, red shirts versus green shirts, and that's never going to change. It's just going to be too large super tribes hating each other and going at each other and never solving anything and never letting go. And unfortunately it's fueled because everybody's born at square one and will end up going through these things and people can get stuck at these levels. And so they end up, you know, with one of these issues. Mm. Um, Let me also say just briefly about that, that um, when we are talking about political aspects uh, of this type of issue. Um, We've talked about integral politics before, and so people that are uh, aware of that orientation realize that um, there are multiple factors from a person's entire cosmic address that determines what sort of political party they end up most identified with. And for a lot of people, of course, it's not just oh, I'm one hundred percent this, and or one hundred percent that. It's well, I'm about maybe eighty percent, you know, Republican, and twenty percent I sort of like Democrats. So it's never that kind that kind of hard, uh, hard and dry. But it often does have that primary divide, particularly since we make this absolutely mandatory with with our sort of two-party system it's very very hard to get other parties introduced into something like a two-party system much that's much better in parliamentary systems for mm-hmm. something like that can happen and that's why i think they're much more important than just a sort of two-party thing that we've got ourselves uh, locked into um but that um to the extent that we see this sort of, are you this approach, or are you this approach, that really is where we start to see um, a definition of left and right that I actually introduce back in Up For Eden, mm-hmm. And that is, if you ask a person why they suffer, what, what goes wrong? So if you ask a Republican, for example, Why is somebody poor? They'll say, oh, well, they don't have the right values, they don't have a work ethic, Um, they don't have correct family values, they don't believe in God. I mean, it's sort of any number of um, items. If you ask somebody from the left why that happens, they will say things like, oh, it's society's fault, society is oppressing them, society is failing them society is not taking their needs into account or something. So you see these two different approaches. One approach says the problem comes from interior things. And the other approach never blames a person's interior. That's the worst thing you can do if Mm -hmm. you're a leftist. Rather, you have to blame the external factors. Those are all responsible for the problem. Uh, And so we tend to see that, um, here, I mean, with abortion, it's the same thing. If you're on the right, then if like a one, if there's like a high percentage of of uh, pregnancy in a particular population, the Republican approaches, well, don't they have any correct home upbringing? Don't they have any sense of self-restraint? Don't they have any sense of responsibility or moral ethics or anything like that? And then the left won't talk about any of that. And it'll just say, oh, well, that's because uh, jobs are taken away with certain uh, congressional um, legislation Mm -hmm. um, or more uh, individuals are being uh, picked up and and put in prison for Mm -hmm. various number of things. But it's always some sort of... We want, if you're on the left, the cure for this is not trying to get the individual to change their orientation so that might lower unwanted pregnancies. It's, oh, unwanted pregnancy, exterior solution, just have an abortion, no problem. And of course, the um, far left wants abortion on demand all the way up through when the baby is emerging through the birth canal. You can still kill it at that point. Um, Mm -hmm. So that's a perfect leftist solution. Um, Mm -hmm. Why the right, again, is saying, wait a minute. Don't you have any sort of self-restraint? Why are you doing this in the first place? Don't you have any sort of uh, morality, and on and on and on. And it's the same with guns, same kind of thing. Just repeat the similar um, item. For Republicans, it's, oh, well, just teach people how to use guns. to teach, you know, self-restraint, uh, etc. cetera. Uh, and then they'll always say, well, you can do whatever gun laws you want. Only criminals get guns, and they're going to break the law, so it doesn't matter anyway. Yep. Um, and then people on the left are always, right, get rid of all the guns. Yep. Get rid of all the guns. Not help try to develop values where people won't want to shoot each other or I won't want to become criminals that do that nothing like that right so again we see that's these are these are really sharp areas are places where you often see that the Mm. most predominant factor in a person's political orientation is one of the second quadrants and so they either think the left-hand quadrants are to blame or they think the right-hand quadrants are to blame Um, Mm. Then other reasons that people can become politically oriented do include levels and various types and all of that. We include all of that in overall integral uh, politics. But for these really staunch um, one one position stances, it often activates an equally staunch, well, it's all due to Interior factors, left-hand quadrants. Oh no, it's all due to exterior factors,
0: right-hand yeah. quadrants. Right,
1: we see a lot of that here with the gun uh, issue.
0: Well, and it's it's really, I mean, yeah. This, this was actually one of my points that the 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 um, one of the things I wanted to throw on the table before we really got into the meat of the conversation was exactly that the left typically sees exterior causes, and the right typically sees interior causes and it drives people like us nuts because we're like you are both right you're both wrong and in fact neither of your solutions are tenable without the other um i mean if we can just get to a point where we can agree let's just all agree yes guns kill people and yes people kill people both of these are true um to add another layer though onto, onto what you were saying ken what i find in this case is actually a little bit interesting because I think it's true when it comes to, when it comes to uh, finding solutions to solve the problem of gun violence, the left is almost always gonna point to exterior solutions and uh, the, the person on the right is almost always gonna point to interior solutions. However, when it comes to tracking the blame, the causes of gun violence, you actually see a bit of an inversion. So the liberals are gonna blame interior things like racism, sexism, homophobia, etc. And then the right blames exterior things like, nope, it's video games. It's those damn video games. If we didn't have the video games, we wouldn't have uh, the violence that we have today. Now, of course, what they're saying is that, you know, the right is saying that this exterior source is corrupting our interior values. Um, so it's still sort of a, an interiorist claim in a certain kind of way. But there's a, there's a deflection. There's a deflection to another sort of root cause um, that has, you know, I mean, I always say shit if we can't handle violent video games Why are they giving us a bunch of guns?
1: Yeah, mm-hmm. and and in, in all those cases um, That's true. And it's always true that um, If somebody is blaming left-hand quadrants, they'll also find things that are going, you know, wrong in the right hand quadrant, but those are problems because the core problem is this interior left, right? It's the values. Yep. Um, and so even something like, um, what you get from green progressives, which are mostly far left, even extreme left, uh, progressives is, it's true that they'll say, Oh, well, um, you and you know, individuals have racism or sexism or, you know, those values or ideas, those interior values are all screwed up. But the major cure for that, uh, It comes from the claim that, well, and and the source of all those problems are institutionalized forms of racism and sexism and structural racism and misogyny. And that's what we have to get at. That's right. Um, And so that's uh, very common. And also the same with things like a Gamergate kind of approach where... Republicans are saying, oh, that's uh, you know, all a problem and all of that. Um, it's a problem because they are exercising their interior values that are so fucked up. Right. And that's what upsets them. They really don't give a shit about video games. They give a shit about this kid that wants to exercise his pornographic lust to do a porno video, or he wants to exercise his you know, um, aggressive, violent desire to kill by using you know all these yep. video things. It's the interior impulses that drive them nuts. Right. Um, get um, H. L. Mencken once said that a Puritan is somebody who spends all of their time worrying that somebody someplace is having a good time, <laughs> and that's. That's exactly right. <laughs> Doesn't matter what the actual exterior actions are. It's that they're enjoying the damn thing. That's <laughs> what can't be uh, right. acceptable. So
0: that's, that's hilarious. Well, and Ken, I, 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 I'm actually glad we talked about the interior exterior thing before I got to this next point, because when we're talking about how difficult and challenging the art of enfoldment can be, I think this sort of helps highlight. So so this case, interior versus exterior causes and solutions, this is one where we can both agree, Now, this is pretty much 50-50 down the middle. You guys, I mean, you guys are both pretty much half right, half wrong, and this, this is a conversation where we really do want to sort of, you know, try to find that 50-50 point. This next point, however, is one where I think we sort of have to take it on its face and swallow it as a bitter pill. There's no 50-50 way to enact this next statistic, which is that the majority of domestic terrorism, which means politically motivated acts of violence, um, most, uh, I'm sorry, the majority of these is coming from the political right wing in recent years. This does not mean violence doesn't happen on the left, doesn't mean that at all. It clearly does. I mean, the Dayton shooter Um, had a whole bunch apparently of very leftist um, writings and it was apparently an Elizabeth Warren uh, supporter, which, you know, drives me crazy as another Elizabeth Warren supporter. Um, And, uh, you know, but it wasn't politically motivated, so it didn't count as domestic terrorism. So violence certainly does happen on the left. However, in recent years, Most cases of recorded domestic terrorism is coming from the right wing. In fact, since 2008, the number of right wing terrorist attacks on American soil, which includes things, everything from white supremacists, militias, um, the sovereign citizen movement, things like, you know, things like that. um, These incidents outnumber radical Islamic terrorist attacks by two to one two-to-one margin. We're getting twice as many far-right cases of domestic terrorism as we're getting Islamic attacks in this country.
1: And Uh, the ratio of far-right terrorist acts to left-wing terrorist acts is five-to-one.
0: Wow. Wow. So there's something going on here culturally, which we will talk about soon, but it's one of the questions which is, you know, with all this anxiety and depression and particularly social isolation that's going around, this is clearly affecting people on the political left and in the political right in different sorts of ways. One of the effects that it's having on many within the far right, this isn't the typical right, this isn't, you know, your, your, your mom and dad's Republicans. This is, this is some truly toxic far right crap um, that's allowing you know um, socially disaffected uh, young men, mostly to get radicalized. These men who feel no connection to anyone, no real community we're going to talk about all this soon. Um, but th- they become ripe for radicalization because they're they're being invited into an ethos that gives them meaning, that identifies as clear. Enemies, clear challenges and obstacles and clear, um, you know, forces that are trying to take away their natural God-given rights and their identity. A lot of this does also come down to identity. What is white white supremacy other than the worst possible form of identity politics? Um, And this is a real problem that we've been seeing. And it's been disappointing to say the least, you know, just yesterday, and it came out that um, Trump's DOJ was hiding a report that just got released yesterday that um, confirmed, once again, last year, 2018, the majority of, of, uh, of attacks, I think virtually all of them, came from the political right wing. Um, so if, if our own administration is not capable of talking about this problem honestly because they're afraid of alienating their own base, then I don't see a whole lot of ways that we can actually begin to move forward and t- start taking a look at the real problems here. It's not that republicanism is evil or anything like that. It's not that the liberals are looking to take away your white women and steal your <laughs> steal your way of life. Right. Um, it's, it's clear that what we're seeing right now is really, really toxic worldviews that are able to uh, propagate themselves and land in the minds and the hearts of very uh, vulnerable and oftentimes very disturbed young men. Agree with that? Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. Um, and we're going to come back to the whole problem of white um, white supremacy and and um, and the very genuine problems that it, that it's causing. But here's um, here's a, a broad perspective. To keep that in mind, Mm -hmm. as we know, most strict fundamentalist types of ethnocentric organizations have strong roots in in an amber stage of development. Um, And that represents far extreme right organizations. There's a couple important things about that. One is that certainly in the 1950s, we have this whole spectrum of developmental waves going up our our entire social structure. And in 1959, 3% of America's population was green. And by 1972, it was pushing into 15 percent. So the green orientation truly emerged at that point, and it emerged with essentially the baby boomers. Um, and so the best and the brightest of that generation moved into green. That's just sort of what it did..
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, And so that was um, um, an extremely important move. Um, But it did, that green did tend to start to become broken green fairly quickly as a lot of the stances that green was taking became increasingly radicalized and embraced in extremist forms. And that tended to produce... Um, a real breakdown at the leading edge. And and this has been one of my primary concerns for Mm -hmm. where to locate problems. So for example, if we look at, well, we know the world knows what the right looks like when it goes too far. It produces things like Nazism, fascism, etc. We know that because after World War Two, and this is a point that Douglas Murray makes. After World War Two, we we won the war, we caught the Nazis, we put them all on trial at Nuremberg, and we hung the bastards. And it, this was after going through weeks and weeks and weeks of showing the absolute atrocities that the right can commit when it goes too far. And it goes too far when it starts to absolutize its values. Its values are ethnocentric, so they're racist or sexist or misogynist or xenophobic or transphobic or homophobic or on and on. That's what an ethnocentric stage does. That's how it works. So... We had that happening um, and it's, that became clear to the world with the Nuremberg trials. Now, then we also had this far left and particularly at least the intellectuals of the leading progressive movements Marx, for example, um, was a, a very strong green writer. And so he, he was including these green values. Um, and that was the far left. And we saw where, what, just like we know what happens when the right goes too far, you get Auschwitz. We know it. That's horrible. Nobody does that. We don't have the same kind of idea about what happens when the left goes too far. Because even though, because what happened is the left did go too far. It went too far with Stalin. It went too far with Mao Zedong. And the number of people killed by those far left organizations, estimates vary the most conservative estimate is well over a hundred million people murdered by the left when it goes too far. Douglas Murray's point, by the way, Hitler killed 13 million. Douglas Murray's point is that we caught the far right, put them through Nuremberg. But when the Berlin wall fell and the people that had killed upwards of 100 million people through things like the gulag archipelago they weren't brought to trial so we got no chance to see what it looks like when the left goes too far Mm. and so one of the problems is that that's what's happening in today's culture among the progressive movement is that they are increasingly this far left green and that goes too far just like the right goes too far when it absolutizes its values. Green goes too far when it absolutizes its values and its values are not individual rights and individual freedom. Those are orange values. Those are original liberal values and What happened with those liberal values is very interesting, and and I'll just um, say this very quickly. But those orange liberal values were created, again, back during the Western Enlightenment, when previously we just had essentially ethnocentric stages of development, and the Western Enlightenment was the first emergence of world-centric stages. And that included world-centered morality. And so where previously you had rights, for example, if you about 90% of the population was fundamentalist Christian. So you had rights if you were a Christian. If you're not a Christian, you die, you're going to burn in hell forever along with every all the Hindus and all the Buddhists and all the Taoists and all the unbaptized babies. And I mean, it's just an endless, way more people in hell than there are in heaven. And all the interesting people are in hell. I mean, yeah, that's the place you want to go. That's where the fun is happening. Um, and all there is in heaven is a bunch of fundamentalist Puritans that are worried about people in hell having fun. So, uh, so there's that issue. Um, but so what we have with, um, this whole orange stage of development is that the best and the brightest at that time moved into that stage. And because they, predominantly we 're working with reason, not so much mythic modes of knowing but rational modes of knowing the age of reason. it was also their moral values shifted up as well from conventional or conformist ethnocentric modes, which is you get rights if you belong to my special group if not you 're dead i you're other, you're worthless, you're going to hell, I'll kill you if I have to, etc. And then all of a sudden the writers of the Enlightenment started looking at, well, wait a minute, why are you saying that people have rights only if they're Christians? Actually, you have rights, everybody has rights, the simple fact of being born a human. And so those universal rights of all humans, that's what started to emerge with the Western Enlightenment. And for the first time in history, literally, we decided that what was morally correct was to treat all people fairly, regardless of race, color, sex, creed, or religion. That was radically new. And so the politically oriented of that time actually invented a new political philosophy, and they called it liberalism. And so, John Stuart Mill, John Locke, and others were extrapolating on on what that meant. And that was where these original liberal values came from. They were product of orange and orange rationality. That, of course, meant that it tended to be scientific. So, it believed in evolution. The previous mythic, religious, ethnocentric, did not really like science, certainly did not like evolution. And so it sort of remained in this little territory. Meanwhile, these new far fangled liberals were agreeing with science. They were progressive. They defined themselves that way. That's what a liberal was. But a liberal was in favor of individual rights, individual freedom, and particularly that showed up as equal opportunity. And that became a really sort of crucial um, component of that. They ended up, these two groups, of course, ended up being called the left and the right. And they got that title simply because in the French assembly at the time, all of the traditionalists that supported the monarchy, supported the previous um, religious orientation uh, supported the conservative point of view. They all sat in the right hand seats in the assembly and these newfangled liberals all sat in the left hand seats. And so the terms left and right were applied and they just stuck. We've been using those terms ever since. But here's the great confusion that occurred in the 60s and then increasingly into the 70s and so on. That has completely confused everybody And nobody gets what happened. The, as, uh, I talked previously about 1959, only 3% of the population at Green. Well, as Green continued to rise, and again, by early 1970, it was moving into the 12, 13, 14, 15% category. All of the, or not all of them, um, I don't know exactly how many, but I'm just going to say half, half of the old time original Democrat liberals that were at Orange, and they would grown up at Orange. Mm-hmm. And so they always looked to Orange for post conventional world centric morals. So it became common and not unfairly to say that, oh, if you don't like homosexuals, then you want to become a conservative because they don't like homosexuals. And oh, if you don't like fundamentalist religion, oh, you want to be a conservative, amber ethnocentric, because you'll you'll like those. But you always look to the orange liberal Democrat to be inclusive, and you knew that they were going to be fair and so on. Now, but a fundamental change started to happen in cities. And that is, again, half of the original orange liberals, because they were progressive, they progressed into green. And they became green. This was a new left as opposed to the old left. And I'm using that just in terms of developmental things. I don't mean neoliberal or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Which is that so there was an old left and a new left. And it was the old left that embraced the original liberal values of individual rights and things like free speech and so on. The new green left didn't like any of that. As a matter of fact, it didn't like any liberal values. And so it actually started to speak out against those free speech. Oh, if you are in favor of that, that's racist. The University of California university system came out and said that if you say there's only one race, the human race, that's racist. So all of a sudden green gets sort of more extreme and sort of more extreme and eventually becomes this kind of, kind of broken green. And its predominant value was not individual rights, but group rights, social justice. It wants not equal opportunity, which again it thinks is racist and sexist, it wants equal outcome. So it doesn't want everybody starting the race fairly at the same time, it wants everybody ending the race at the same time. Mm-hmm. That was the battle that we started getting. Now, at the same time that happened, the original conservatives, there was this whole bump up in the whole sort of evolutionary thing as, as it all bumped up one level and so the Democrats the left had gone from orange to green about half and half but then also the original conservatives who were at amber about half of them bumped up to orange mm. so now they're actually accepting adopting and expressing classic liberal values and that became a really sort of critical battle cry. Mm -hmm. Are you supporting classic liberal values or not? Um, And so even people as diverse as Jordan Peterson, um, Sam Harris, um, Ben Shapiro, Dave Rubin have all publicly said, I'm a classic liberal. Because those orange values weren't getting expressed by leading edge green leftists. Mm-hmm. As a matter of fact, they hated those values. Now the that new left portion of the Democrats ended up sort of silencing the old left voices left in the party. You're not allowed to speak in the Democratic Party, if you're trying to say, well, I want free speech here, or I want individual rights there. No, you have to be talking about social justice. You have to be talking about identity politics, safe spaces, trigger warnings, all of that.
0: The blue dog Democrats are not very popular. What
1: happened was these new right individuals who had moved up to orange and adopted orange liberal world-centric values, one of the first things that they started to do was try to dampen down the the old right. Mm -hmm. They did tend to be ethnocentric and nationalist and hyper-patriotic a little bit white supremacist and a little bit sexist and patriarchal and, and, and all of that. So you get the new right trying to clamp that down. And because the Old left was no longer publicly supporting liberal values. Strangely, the new right became the most vocal supporters of liberal rights, or classic liberal rights, which was individual rights, small government, uh, equal opportunity, um, and uh, and and so on. So what we get is it's very clear at amber that tends to be far right and it's very clear at green that tends to be far left even extremist left and then classic liberal values orange is now shared by sort of all democrats and new republicans um so that's just it's kind of important because what that means is that liberal and left no longer mean the same
0: right at all Yep.
1: and that's what's confused the hell out of everybody yeah i mean dave rubin talks about it and he's saying i don't get it i didn't leave the party the party left me um and increasingly you will hear people say well left and liberal don't mean the same something's happened to them they're wrong and that's right i mean the left which started at orange moved on to green and so to the extent that they both have a leftist tilt i just refer to both of them as progressives right and not liberal or terms like that because liberal strictly applies just to just to orange.
0: Right.
1: So um, the final point about just sort of making some of those clarifications is that, and again, this comes off um, Douglas Murphy's, but um, because we didn't try what happens when the left goes too far in a big public worldwide trial We still, most people still don't know what it looks like when the left goes too far, but what it looks like is any sort of, you know, really, um, enthusiastic college protest, uh, movement. They're expressing far left, um, values, identity, politics, egalitarianism, equal outcome and they're screaming people down. And as you know, don't even want to talk to people uh, that aren't doing it. We'll talk about that as Mm -hmm. kind of um, the regressive left um, Mm -hmm. aspect of it. But here's why as frightening as the numbers of white supremacist groups engaged in murder, Mm -hmm. Uh, without a doubt an amber ethnocentric fascist movement is probably the single worst thing that you want to see happen but this culture its center of gravity has moved considerably beyond that so here's the thing about white supremacists have you ever seen a white supremacist um, vocally and cheerfully run for a political office?
0: No. Yeah, there, there was there was a few of them, Ken. Yeah, not many. Not many, but there were there were a few. Well,
1: and carefully presented. Are they're, they're not ones that just go out and go, well, we want to murder all these people. Yeah, they don't say that, that's for sure. It's, it's just not, it's not there. Um, when's the last time you've seen a white supremacist protesting at a college campus? Right. Um, when's the last time you've seen a white supremacist be a movie star? Or had yeah, um, When's the last time a white supremacist was a major reporter on a uh, Central News? organization. Fox doesn't even do that. Certainly CNN, uh, MSNBC, ABC, none of those have anything to do with that. So we really we don't see white supremacists as some sort of movement that's moving into academia. It's not moving into entertainment. It's not moving into media. It's not moving in, in, into um, political governance, really. And the reason it's not is that, like I say, our cultural center of gravity has moved so far beyond that, that what it does is it takes most of those white supremacists and forces them underground. And underground is where they operate. And that's one of the reasons the net made it worse Mm -hmm. because things like the KKK were dying and then the net came along and then all of a sudden they could start finding each other and so that started to up their numbers a bit. Same is true for white supremacists. Um, But white supremacy as an overall movement is knocked down in this culture. So that's what we see, we see cultural leaders you know, fuming about white supremacists. But you'll never see them fuming about far-left radicals or protesters or media or entertainment or any of that. It just doesn't happen. You get a clean pass if you're doing it there. So that's why it's a little bit of an issue that we have to watch. So, yes, absolutely track the real damage that's being done by things like white supremacists, KKK, neo-Nazis, and mm-hmm. so on. But those are not the types of movements that will gain a widespread national acceptance if they stand up and start saying, hey, I want to do this, I want to do that. Yep. Massive amounts of Americans will say, no, the hell you won't.
0: Yep. And yeah, that, that I totally agree with that. White nationalism will never be a viable political philosophy in modern United States, despite the efforts of some white nationalists to try. So just, uh, I think it was yesterday or the day before, we had a, a Republican in Texas who said, we need to break the GOP up into a nationalist party so that we can, in his words, finish what Donald Trump started. So, here's what I noticed again. Thank you. First off, thank you for that, for, for giving us again, that overview of just sort of how these different sides have changed. And one of the things that I notice as you're talking is, you know, in the 1970s is when you've really sort of located, you know, this is when the democratic party on the left was going through a lot of changes. That's when these, these green perspectives were really starting to flood in um, all of it, you know, really all of a sudden it sort of hit a tipping point And then the, the party began to change pretty rapidly. Right. That was also the period, Ken, when when leftists were responsible for most domestic terrorism in the country. The 1970s and the early 1980s, most of the domestic terrorism was committed by leftist radicals, Marxists, uh, eco-terrorists, anti-capitalists of all sort of, you know, shades well and it started with the uh, protests on the vietnam
1: war right So you know, groups like the weathermen and all of those those are all far leftist communist tinged
0: yep uh, organizations and they weren't mass shootings they were bombings usually is how that type of terrorism was carried out and then in mid 80s and by, certainly by the time we got into the 90s leftist domestic terrorism started to decline And then starting in the zeros, domestic terrorism from the right started to escalate. And what I noticed, Ken, is, you know, I think there's a compelling case to be made that the Republican Party, not just the conservatives as constituents or voters and all that, but the GOP, the Republican Party itself, is going through, um, well, let's just say a similar kind of transformation. There are elements of the party that are trying to reach up out beyond sort of where trumpism i think is taking them and then you have members of that party who like the guy i just mentioned just said no let's go lower let's actually make this a straight up nationalist party uh and sort of complete so what i notice is that when a political party starts going through this major identity shift within itself that has the the potential um along with all the other factors that we're about to jump into but that creates an atmosphere by which violence maybe becomes a little bit more likely because there's 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 confusion as to what this group now represents my place in it are they representing me or are they representing the people who i view as crazies over there um is it anti-globalist enough you know all of these sort of uh uh this this sort of turbulence in the party i think might be one of those factors that's that's generating some of this violence and my other takeaway is that fuck, we really learned the wrong lesson from the 20th century, didn't we? I mean, you're right, we didn't have Nuremberg trials over far leftism, but we did have a 50-year Cold War with Russia that, you know, in in terms of American culture, demonized, uh, you know, the concepts of communism and socialism and collectivism and all that. And we're just now sort of getting out from underneath that hangover. It sounds to me like the lesson we should have learned in the 20th century is left or right, it doesn't matter. Don't have an amber government. Don't have an amber government that's going to bring you to its sort of natural conclusion, which is either going to be a concentration camp or a gulag. Um, And maybe if that was the lesson we had learned, if we had the developmental language back then to learn that lesson, maybe we'd be having a different conversation.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it's the the left and right sort of terrorist groups go up and uh, up and down as sort of in cycles. Mm-hmm. Um, so nine eleven, for example, reduced the number of right wing terrorist organizations. Uh, one report said they just collapsed. I mean, because they just you know it's really it was such a challenge to everything they stood for. It it, it just took the wind out of their sails. Um, It it took a real upward peak with Obama and starting in 209, right wing started back up Mm -hmm. and then it peaked in around 212. And that's been the problem. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it, it also... It goes to show that those kinds of things, um, in some ways, not it's it's not responsible for the total number of factors that are causing these things to happen. Mm-hmm. But at least in some ways, we can see that they're clearly responding to how they see social, political, and cultural realities, um, and that all, that's something that all, all also has to be. Has to be kept in mind.
0: Yep. Well, and a lot of that you you mentioned the right wing violence, how it started escalating uh, in the Obama era, starting from two thousand nine. Um, that also correlates with all of a sudden the NRA is dumping an unprecedented amount of money into media and into polit, you know, politicians on the right uh, into their hands in order to uh, you know perpetuate this myth that obama's coming for your guns and so they sold more ammunition in those eight years than they had in like 20 years prior or something it's ludicrous statistic like that and that created all this just added to the tension and the animosity and the culture wars and the polarization and all the things we're about to talk about it just it just turned up the gas on those right and added more pressure to this pressure cooker that I think we're now sort of watching explode um, in slow motion. Right. We invite you to listen to the full eight hour discussion on integrallife.com. Sign up today as a supporting member and get your first month for only $1. Just visit integrallife.com for more details.